Hello, and welcome to What is Innovation? The podcast that explores the reality of a word that is in danger of losing its meaning altogether. This podcast is produced by Outlast Consulting, LLC, a boutique consultancy that helps companies use innovation principles to solve their toughest business problems. I'm your host, Jared Simmons, and I'm so excited to have Matt Wool. Matthew Wool is the CEO of Acceleration Partners. After joining the company as its fourth employee in 2012, Matt served as general manager and then president of the company before becoming CEO in 2021. Matt has been a driver of Acceleration Partners' success, including the company's numerous Inc. 500 list of fastest-growing private companies, multiple most effective agency nods from the Performance Marketing Awards, and numerous Best Place to Work awards from Forbes and Glassdoor. Matt is a member of the Fast Company Executive Board and is a frequent speaker at performance marketing industry events. Matt, I am so excited to have you on the show today. Your company does amazing things and fascinating work and looking forward to learning more about you and, and your innovation journey. Thanks so much. Really happy to be here. All right. Well, let's dive right in. What in your mind is innovation? Yeah. So I've been thinking about this in preparation for coming on the show. What's interesting is that our business as partnership marketers and our long history in the affiliate marketing space mm -hmm. is all about relationships. And the thing that I have figured out as we grown as a company and developed is that there are so many people out there that are doing really innovative stuff, but they don't necessarily understand how to actually get it into action, right? Mm. Mm -hmm. They're great ideas, but they have a very hard time actualizing those ideas. And being in the, you know, the relationship world, the partnership world, what I have come to see as innovation is putting together the, the idea or the thing that is new and different and, and adds value, but then being able to actually connect it, right, to, mm. to actualize it. And in our case, that means connecting it from a publisher to a brand. There are thousands, millions of publishers out there that have all these great ideas and are doing all kinds of cool stuff and innovating everywhere. But what truly makes the innovation is when we're able to figure out the how, mm, right. how they actually then start to work with our client or how they then start to add value. So I've actually come to see innovation much more almost in that connective space, the how in a lot of ways. Right. No, I, I love that because it, it really lines up you think about impact and outcomes for, of innovation, that connection really, in my mind, starts to create almost like a car analogy in my head. You know, like you've got all these great engines out there, but they're missing that axle, then, you know, and the, yeah. the, the drivetrain to kind of connect it to the road. But they've got, you know, this 800 horsepower idea and no way of making the car move. That's exactly right. So like, obviously you can't have innovation without the engine. Right. As I've seen so many great things fall by the wayside, for exactly that reason, I increasingly, as I get older in my career, <laughs> see the how as really critical. And I think that's where I look at, at innovation in a lot of ways. When you talk to venture capitalists, so many times they say, hey, you know, uh, which we ask them where they invest money, mm -hmm. right? They invest in, the, in a founder they've worked with before, not just the great idea, right? Because the money they put into the great idea often doesn't go anywhere because it's lacking that. Whereas the founder they've worked with before, they've seen, right? They know they have the house. Yeah, th that's where my brain has gone a lot more to around innovation these days. Got it, got it. If we think about innovation and connections in practice, what do those connections look like? Yeah, so I mean, I can talk about it in our world and I'm mm -hmm. sure it, it applies in, in other worlds as well, right? So, sure. so for us, 
in partnership marketing, we have a, a brand, uh, we'll just call it Acme. Mm-hmm. And Acme has a program where it works with hundreds or thousands of third-party publishers all across the, the web. And those third-party publishers are essentially promoting Acme to their users mm-hmm. and trying to refer you know, business to Acme and they get paid by Acme for that um, on a performance basis after you know, a transaction has occurred. Within that model, you might have a thousand different publishers that Acme is working with, and there will probably be 800 different business models across those thousand. Right. So those thousand publishers are all doing lots of different things. And a lot of them are just like any business. They are trying to find the open space, right, where there's not competition so they can create a niche and, and that drives innovation, right? That drives, that drives creativity. Exactly. But ultimately what has to happen is those thousand publishers each have to have a way to fit into Acme's economics, business model, and marketing strategy. Mm. So for example, if Acme's marketing strategy is we never discount, right? We don't do any discounting. We are premium price only, right? If a publisher is out there and their whole business model is shooting out you know, discount codes to people mm. all day, those things aren't going to connect. And so you can have the most innovative discount code publisher, right. but that how isn't going to be there. That's an overly simplified case. Right? That's helpful. But for us, it's, a, it's all about figuring out then, you know, how can you take you know, two companies, the Acme and, and a publisher with their own interests and their own business models and align them. And a lot of times when you have publishers that are doing really cool, new, interesting, innovative stuff, Mm -hmm. it's a lot harder to figure out that how, because there's not a standardized way that you can figure out how to put them together. Because it's so dynamic in the- Exactly. I see. I see. I would imagine there's a lot in in terms of translation that you have to do in terms of speaking both languages and finding a way to find common ground or have everyone speak the same language in terms of terminology, but also in terms of metrics, I would imagine. Yeah. So, so education is a really big part of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things that we come across all the time, which I'm sure you, you see all the time too, is like, you have someone who has a really great concept or a great new business model, and they just can't articulate it, <laughs> right? <laughs> they, they just can't explain it in a way that unless you like really understand that space or are close to it. I think that so many people just don't see the value in being able to explain something, you know, in a third grade way. Right. And if you can't explain something like I'm a third grader, then, then it's going to be hard. Yep. So yeah, so there's a ton that we have to do in education and a ton we have to do in going both ways, right? So, you know, we sit down with the publisher that has some whiz-bang new technology thing that they're trying to do and they can't explain their way out of a paper bag. Mm-hmm. So then we have to say, okay, so how do we translate that, as you said, back to the client? and help be that connective tissues that the client understands what it really is and how it can fit within their, you know, within their business model and their, and their ecosystem. So there's a lot that happens with education metrics. You're right. A lot of times there's, there can be misalignment. If Acme, if all they care about is revenue, you know, number of widgets sold dollars, and you've got a publisher who's really focused on engagement metrics on mm-hmm. social media. Mm-hmm. Like I say to people, like explain to me like I'm a third grader. Right. You're going to have to figure that out. And a lot of times there's translation that's happened there. But honestly, what we find more often than not is just people have a hard time actually explaining their thing mm. and haven't taken the time to break it down into really simple concepts. Right. 
<laughs> I can empathize with your position in that space. It's one of those situations where you come up with this brilliant idea and you live in it. You live inside of it and you hang the pictures on the wall, pick out the couch and everything. And it is exactly laid out the way that makes perfect sense to you. And then you invite somebody into your idea and it doesn't make any sense to them because they haven't been living in it. And it it's really hard to help somebody understand that just because it's clear in your head doesn't mean it's self-evident to other other people. It doesn't mean that your idea is bad and it doesn't mean you're a poor communicator. It just means there's a gap. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And um, our company for a long time, we've subscribed to um, something called the Entrepreneurial Operating System. It's created by this guy named Gino Wickman. And uh, it's also known as Traction. Uh, it's kind of, there's, there's a book called Traction. It's re really good stuff for a lot of different companies. I don't know if you're familiar with that at all, but oh, man, cool. And one of the core tenets of the entrepreneurial operating system is that entrepreneurial companies have what's called a visionary. And then they also have what's called an integrator. Mm, okay. And most often the visionary is the, you know, the person who's coming up with the great ideas. They're the, the innovative engine, right, of it. But the visionary, most of the time, not always, but most of the time, has a really hard time articulating their vision mm. in a way that can actually be then applied. Right. And it's exactly what you just said. It's like, it's like in their head, it's so clear, but it's very difficult sometimes for them to be able to like, you know, <laughs> describe it to other people and, and really get into action. So right. the core relationship of the visionary and integrator is that the visionary comes up with all these great ideas. The integrator can then say, okay, let me translate that for employees and the world and, and everything right? And, and operationalize it. And that becomes a really powerful combination. So exactly what you just said is, mm. is, is right on. And I think that, you know, that model was built specifically for that reason. Yeah. Yeah. I'm gonna have to check that out. Traction. I can imagine that, or I've seen that play out in organizations vertically. Like maybe there's a CEO visionary and a COO that actually makes the trains run on time and actually makes it come to life. Sometimes the CEO is the integrator and, and, you know, maybe there's a founder who's moved on. That was the visionary or what have you. It almost sounds like in that model, your company can sometimes play the integrator role. Yeah, I think that's right. Like in a lot of ways, we are the integrator, right? Between the innovator on the publisher side and, and the client. And I think that that's exactly right. And we say on our website, you know, we are connectors, right? And I think we mean that from a relationship standpoint, right? We're all about relationships, but in a more, you know, literal way, as you're saying, right? right. We're, we're connecting people because we're able to play that role of, of, of the integrator. Now, I love this definition of innovation because there's always so much emphasis placed on the inspiration, the idea, the, you know, lightning bolt moment, so to speak, or what have you, but nothing gets accomplished in a vacuum. The, the impact can't be realized by one person alone or, or even one team alone in this global economy that everyone's competing in. And I think that the role of partnerships only gets more important and valuable as the days go by. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. One of the things that we're talking a lot about here is, at our company is that as the digital economy continues to evolve, partnerships are becoming more and more critical for economic reasons, mm -hmm. but also because if all you're doing is running paid ads on Google, for example, it's hard to find the new, awesome, innovative thing from there. Right. You don't have access to, you know, it's one partner and partner is probably a strong word. It's one, you know, <laughs> right. platform that you're you know, coin, one slot machine that you're, you know, putting money into. Yep. And I'm not telling people not to use Google paid search because it's, it's a great thing. And yep. it will be something that almost every company should be doing. Yep. But a lot of companies are now saying, okay, how do I find the innovation beyond that? Mm -hmm. And partnership programs are a great way to do that because you have access to everything in that, in that way. Right. Right. 
I would love to talk a bit about the economics and some of the broader drivers around the growing importance of partnerships. Personally, with our firm, we've always kind of been attracted to partnerships because of the ability to just instantly add capability, add a dimension to your organization overnight without the complexity of hiring or the complexity of a lot of different aspects of how you might otherwise go after that talent or that capability. What are some of the other sort of macro influences that are making partnerships more valuable these days? Yeah. So I think what you said is absolutely true and holds true a thousand percent. I think some of the big ones right now are that there are a lot of companies who have built, if not all, a very significant portion of their business on doing marketing basically through maybe two or maybe three channels. Mm-hmm. Google, Facebook, and I include you know Instagram in, in Facebook, and then maybe there's a third, right? Maybe they're uh, maybe they're using Amazon's you know marketplace advertising or Apple or whatever. Sure, but a, a pretty limited basket of marketing tools. And what we've seen over the last several years is that those tools have gotten expensive. Mm. Yes, you know, quarter over quarter, you see the cost for clicks and impressions and everything on those platforms going up and up. And again, I will reiterate what I said before. I'm not encouraging anyone to just drop Facebook or Instagram or Google cold turkey or at all. That's, that's not what I'm saying because they are great platforms and they can create a lot of value. But the problem comes when you are basically you know, beholden to their economics. Right. You can't control what the cost per click is on Google, right? You right. can't control what Facebook is going to charge you. And so you don't have a lot of control right, in, in those situations. So the analogy that we make is Think of it like a stock portfolio. If you have your retirement account, you would never put 50% of your retirement account in one stock and 50% of your retirement account in another stock and call it a day, right? You would never do that. Uh, It's it's about diversification. Exactly. And so what we see partnerships as is a really great way to diversify. And with partnerships, you get to set a lot more of the parameters. You get to very often determine what, what the economics are you very often get to determine what the parameters of the relationship are, what you're going to accept and what you're not. And to your point, not only that, but you can tap into other capabilities, other audiences, other things uh-huh. in the way you were just talking about, but you can do it in a way where you still have you know, a lot of the control over that relationship. So we see partnerships almost as like a mutual fund. It's like, you know, it's like you've got lots of things under that. I like it. Yeah. But it becomes a critical diversifier and it does from an innovation standpoint, become a way where you can start to see, okay, what's coming? What's the next big thing? We have a lot of clients who have through their partnership marketing programs seen, you know, tactics that they had never thought of Mm. because a publisher was using it on their end. Right. Or, you know, they've seen kind of ways of interacting with customers or they've seen new ways to think about the economics of their product or whatever it is. Yeah. So I think that there's a lot, a lot of stuff in that, but I think that the macro of costs becoming more and more untenable is, is a big macro driver for that. Got it. Got it. That's helpful. So when I think of cost, I think of ROI because it's just the way I was trained. It's like a knee jerk reaction. Do you see the ROI playing out differently for different industries? So what types of what types of organizations benefit most from your model? And you know, do you see some industries that take advantage of it more or get see more value creation from it? Yeah. So I get asked this question a lot and mm-hmm. I'm going to give you the answer I always give, which is 
I'm afraid sounds cliche, but but really I don't mean it to be cliche because it's true. Yeah. The answer is there really isn't a specific product or vertical or anything like that yeah. that benefits. And the reason for that is because partnerships can have an infinite number of permutations. They can look like anything in any way. So let's say you're Acme, right? And you're selling your widget. Mm-hmm. And let's say your gross margin on a widget is 50%. When you go out to work with publishers, right, through your partnership marketing program, you can say, okay, my gross margin is 50% and I want my contribution margin to be 40%. So that means that I can pay out up to 10% of a transaction on a rev share basis with a partner. Those are my economics. Mm -hmm. And so I can go out and I can find all the partners that are happy with that 10%. Got it. If you're Acme's competitor, like you may make 60% gross margins, but you may have a lot more overhead. And so you can say, I'm willing to pay out 8%, right? And I'm going to go out and find all the partners that can do 8%. And that's just if you're thinking about them as like, you know, retailers. Sure. If you're a B2B business, right? And you're looking for leads on enterprise customers to buy your, you know, $10 million software, the publishers and partners that you're going to be working with are going to be completely different than the ones that Acme is working with for the most part. Mm -hmm. And you're going to set up a completely different program with completely different parameters. Right. So again, I come back to the how, like, it's not that any of them do better because there's some objective way that you're supposed to do this. It's that they can all set up the program that works within their system and find the right partners. And because there are so many partners, most of the time you're able to kind of build the eco- the partner ecosystem that works within your parameters. Got it. No, oh, that's that's very helpful. And it's much more informative answer than it depends. Yeah. <laughs> so, I don't like it. I don't like yeah. it depends. Yeah. So, so thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. But but I'll just be really clear. It's not if it's how is what we usually say to people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. The other thing that jumped out at me as you were uh, outlining the key elements of that was diversity. And the kind of built-in diversity of the partnership pool and that as a foundational element of innovation in any form, you have to have multiple ways of viewing things, multiple approaches. You have to take, you know, if if you're a scientist, you know, there's hundreds, thousands of experiments, different approaches and, and, and takes on things. And so, you know, to me, it feels like your business model has that necessary diversity built into it to be able to unlock value for any type of customer. And, and when you have that with the transparency on the client side, in terms of what they're trying to accomplish, I could see it really creating a lot of options for you as an organization. I think that's exactly right. And I'm, um, I'm a big fan of the book Range. I don't know if you've read that, that book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the book, he talks a lot about how you, you know, by bringing together diverse thought thinkings and, and, and ways of approaching problems, right? Like if you've got a, a physics problem and you go to 10 physicists, they'll all give you the same answer. But if you have a physics problem and you go to a chemist and a biologist and a firefighter and a policeman, you'll get you know, a lot of different answers and right. often you get better results. So I, I do think about that in these partner programs. You have that diversity and you can start to say, okay, I, I'm trying to you know, market and sell my product, whatever it is. And I can now look at all these different partners that are doing things in different ways and try to figure out which of the approaches are, are really the ones that are going to work best for me. And guided by your expertise. Exactly. Yes, yeah, exactly. Right. That's a multiplier on, on that for sure. So we talked about what innovation is, and I love that connections is at the core of that definition. What isn't innovation? I have a couple of answers to this. I guess the most obvious answer, right, for me <laughs> is that what isn't innovation is kind of 
coming up with a great idea and just assuming that like everyone's going to come and just, you know, grab it and run and, and it's not going to actually take a lot of work to make it happen. Right. And I see that all the time. I see so many people that, you know, they, they tell you, oh man, this is what I'm going to do. And you're like, oh, wow, that's a pretty awesome idea. And you say, what's next? And they're like, I don't know, it's going to happen, right? Like, <laughs> right. So, so to me, like that, that by definition, that's not innovation, right? Right, right. <laughs> I think the other thing that's not innovation is I think a lot of times people will, they'll basically recycle an old idea. And as you said, there's nothing new under the sun. So like that happens all the time. Mm-hmm. They'll recycle an, an old idea and they'll, they'll kind of dress it up but they don't actually really come up with the spin that actually makes it fresh in any real way. Mm -hmm. Like ideas get recycled every day. And even a lot of the greatest thinkers of our time have basically repurposed other people's ideas. Yeah, But what they've all done is they have figured out a way to communicate it or just put that, you know, that other 10% on it that makes it different enough and applicable enough to what's new, you know, the, the world today, that, that it's still pretty great. Right. I think a lot of people, they kind of fool themselves that they have something great when in fact, they, they're not even going that far. They're just kind of like, you know, <laughs> recycling someone's idea and yeah. just kind of, you know, changing, changing a few words, right? Right, that, right. To me, that's not innovation, but I do think that in this current world where everyone's trying to be a thought leader. And that's such a buzzword thing, Mm -hmm. right? Being a thought leader. There are a lot of people who are fooling themselves around whether what they're doing is truly innovative because they're honestly not even taking that next 10% to make it work. Right. No, that's well said. And and I couldn't agree with you more. I think to me, it feels like people decide whether or not they're innovative and then they look for evidence. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a really like, good way to put it. You're right. I'm an so, innovator. So now yeah. Here's, yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly. Right. It feels like a hammer in search of a nail sometimes when you hear people talk about that. I also agree with your point around the greats building on things. They recycle, but they upcycle. Yes, that's a really good way to put it. They upcycle it. You're right. Sometimes people demonize kind of been there, done that or seen that or whatever, but everything's built on everything else. You know, I'm a musician and Louis Armstrong created the structure for, you know, basic jazz solos and for vocalists and for instrumentalists. And people just built on that and expanded it and all those things. And, you know, every genre and every human endeavor, we live in fancy huts. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that exactly we, right. You know, so it's not that people are recycling the, you know, the hut concept. It's been upcycled, upgraded and, and improved uh, over time. That's the only way we accomplish things. But to take a hut and then call it a mansion and then try to convince me that it's a mansion. That's not innovation. I think you're exactly right. And I think that that's where, as you just said the right way, you get that when people like decide they're innovators and they're yeah. trying to figure out like <laughs> yeah. what their innovation is, right? Exactly. Is yeah, yeah, exactly. That's why it's so fun to talk to people who are out there doing innovative things. You've got this company that is living and breathing and operating in an innovative way every day. So we're not having a, oh, here's what I think innovation might be conversation. We're talking about, you know, how it comes to life every day. Exactly. Do you have any advice for innovators? The advice I have for innovators is, and I'm going to sound like a broken record, but it's think about the how. And going back to the entrepreneurial operating system example I was giving before, I think that so many innovators, their innovation comes to life when they find that business partner or that person or that partner of some kind Mm -hmm. that is able to help them figure that out. 
Got it. The entrepreneurial business context, again, I see the really innovative companies, they always have some kind of relationship like that, that I've seen mm, at their mm -hmm. core. And I think that to the extent that someone who is an innovator and sees that, I think to the extent that they can think about that, but I guess even a step ahead of that, it's being self-aware enough to understand like, hey, like I've got great ideas. I'm a really talented, innovative person. I've got some stuff here that can change, you know, my industry or my community or the world or whatever. What am I really good at? And what am I not really good at? Mm -hmm. So that then I can supplement the what I'm not really good at stuff in order to get the most out of what I'm trying to innovate with. That would be my advice, because I think that gets people so much farther than if they just kind of, again, blindly push forward with what they're trying to do. Oh, yes. Where were you six years ago when I was <laughs> starting my company? That is such an important concept. I think there's a lot of, a lot of times ego gets ahead of outcomes and founders kind of want to be the ones to do it all and feel like they need to be the one that does it all. And to your point, it's much more innovative and fun approach to find people who compliment you and invite them along on the journey. And I think the fun part is actually really important. In my experience, again, just speaking from my own experience, the people who are the real idea people, that's what gives them energy and that's what is fun for them. What is not fun for them is sitting down with a Gantt chart and organizational <laughs> map and, you know, that, that's not a P&L. Like, that's not fun for them. Yeah. And so to the extent that, you know, they can stay in their fun zone, like that's, I think, when they, they tend to thrive and be even more innovative as opposed to getting dragged into the other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So much of it is energy management and, you know, 10 minutes in a spreadsheet might drain as much energy as a 10 hour brainstorming session for some people and being able to keep people, you know, in the zone where they're having fun and feel fulfilled. Yeah. I think it's so important. I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up. Your advice made me think about outcomes in terms of focusing on outcomes and not necessarily focusing on who's doing what. Do you have any advice for folks on how to think about outcomes in particular? We actually have a book coming out soon called Moving to Outcomes. So there's something oh, that well, there you go. <laughs> think about a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I think a big one is the metrics. What are the metrics that define the outcome? Mm -hmm. I think so often people just start moving on something, but they have not defined what is a successful outcome or what is not a successful outcome in that way. Yeah. And the other big one is, uh, is accountability. Our organization is really big on accountability and trying to be as clear as we possibly can around who's accountable for what and giving people the ability to operate within their accountability, mm. trusting them to own it. But you can't do that unless it's very clear what the accountability is. Right. And so it's very hard to move to outcomes if people don't have clarity around, okay, here's what I own. Here's my lane and I'm running with it and pushing the ball forward. I'm just going to keep referring to different frameworks on this podcast, I guess. But I like you know, we're real big on five dysfunctions of a team. Mm -hmm. I love that book. Yeah. Yeah. If you just start with that, the whole thing will, will come. And, and, and I think the bottom of that pyramid is trust. And mm -hmm. that's what it starts with. Yes. Yes. Yeah. We'll put range and traction and five dysfunctions of the team. We'll get all that into the show notes so folks can track those down. Those are some of my favorites. I love your advice around, you know, collaboration and being outcome focused and driving accountability, the environment of trust. Those are words we should all seek to live by, innovators or not. So thank you so much for your time, Matt. It's a pleasure chatting with you and, I, and I'm just grateful for your time. 
Yeah, thanks. This would be great. A lot of fun. All right. Take care. We'd love to hear your thoughts about this week's show. You can drop us a line on Twitter at Outlast LLC, O-U-T-L-A-S-T-L-L-C, or follow us on LinkedIn where we're Outlast Consulting. Until next time, keep innovating, whatever that means.